Well, good morning, Lighthouse. Thank you so much for having us. We just really want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for standing with us. Um, we, this has taken a lot longer than we ever, ever imagined, but we are so thankful to do it with you and to um, walk arm in arm and do this. Even though you don't see us very often, we know you're praying and we know you're with us and we so, so appreciate that. Yeah, so just so can you know that we love ice cream too. Yeah, <laughs> <do>. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, Sarah and I had the privilege of uh, helping our daughter Chelsea and her husband Tim, who were actually married right here five years ago, a little over five years ago. They moved from the swamps of Florida up to the amazing scenery and wildlife in Anchorage, Alaska. So we we had to we had to partake in some of that amazing uh, wildlife there and. Two sons of ours uh, joined us up there, and we did some salmon fishing. Now, if any of you have ever fished, you know that some days the fish are, you you could almost throw in an empty hook, and you're going to catch fish. Some days you need to be more creative in the bait you use and the kind of methods you use. And then there's salmon. These guys are dead tired. They've been swimming hundreds of miles in the ocean, up milky glacier-fed streams and up pristine streams and rivers. And you almost have to drop the bait right on their head in a natural way before they can even be bothered to take a bite. I kind of liken that to us coming to Christ and then daily walking with Jesus until he calls us home. Some days we're just so excited and the word comes alive and it's just really cool. And some days we need to be a little more creative in the way we interact with God's word and the way we read it and some of the tools we use. And on some days, God just needs to hit us over the head, (laughs) kind of like those salmon. But wherever we're at, God's word needs to be in the mix, in the middle. And it's a decision we make, no matter how we're feeling, to interact with God's word. And we're so blessed here in America to have God's word in hundreds, literally hundreds of translations that speak to us clearly. And for Dr. regularly spending time in God's word is not yet really encouraged, even in churches. We think um, that's mainly due to the fact that they don't have God's word in a language that they use every day. It's in the national language, which tends not to be used every day except in official kind of functions. So we, we found that in Fordata concepts like the hope we have, the amazing hope we have in Jesus, kind of gets muddy. It's not real clear to them. Do we have the we have those verses in Romans? Why don't we read these together? These are amazing verses. This is Romans 5, the end part of verse 2 up to verse 5. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In Fordata, there's not one word that conveys the understanding we have of hope. So we in the Fordata team came up with a phrase. We, we have to use verbs a lot. We can't use abstract nouns like hope. Literally translated into English, 
It means we hang our lives on Jesus. We believe there's a change in the air in Fordata as for the first time the church has really gotten behind using local language scriptures so that people can really understand what it is to hang their lives on Jesus. One of our friends, uh, in July we were in Indonesia, and one of our friends came to us, and we were reading together, and he expressed to us, I think it's so, he's in the, he's in the brown shirt in this picture, and he um, expressed how much he appreciated having God's word made clear to him in his own language. He's working as a school administrator in this little tiny island that has no cell signal, no internet, just super remote, no connection with the outside world really. But the people there, um, they don't have much of the scripture, and our team apparently has not done much distribution out there. And so the people there, just when he gets up, he's a, he's a leader in his church. He serves, and sometimes he teaches. And when he prays and when he teaches the bits that he has, he, the people just love it. And some come away with tears in their eyes. They're so appreciative. And so it was so appreciative to have something to give to the people, um, something that would really communicate clearly to them. But probably the most exciting moment for us this summer um, was seeing something that we have been praying and praying and praying for for so long. Um, within our team, we're a small team that's translating for the Fordata people. And uh, there's been some longstanding bitterness between two guys. And, uh, you know, we prayed, we encouraged, we challenged, we cajoled, we did everything we could. And we just had to wait on God's timing. The day before we left, the one that had offended recognized that he needed to go to the one he had offended and say, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And the change has been so amazing. And we're just praising God for people that are changed because God's word does change us all. And uh, he is, God is a, God, a prayer answering God. And I'm just so, so thankful for that. So praise God for his work. And please pray as we go forward with kind of this new season in our team. Yeah, you kind of get the idea that us, the, the Fordata men and women who translate with us or part of this, we're all human. We all need to forgive each other. We all mess up. But thank God, again, for the hope and the grace that he shows us. Grace I definitely don't deserve. As Sarah said, this past July, we, we spent a lot of time checking. We're doing these final revisions. So we sat down and we, we went over all 20 chapters of Acts in about a week. One guy I sat with is named Rain. We've known him since he was a college student. Now he's a government leader in the regional government. We were going, we came across, we come across some words that just jump out a lot in Acts. One which is the word or the phrase for believer. It occurs over 100 times in the book of Acts. And the phrase we use for believer is a person who follows or believes Jesus. So I said, Rain, can you? Tell me, what, what do you think, what, what a person like this who follows Jesus, what kind of a life he has? And he goes, oh, that's a really good question. And he started off kind of by contrasting. He's, he said the, um, a person who calls himself a Christian isn't necessarily the same as a person who follows Jesus. He goes, a person that, because we all call ourselves Christians, it's a mainly Christian area. He says, there isn't necessarily any difference between a person who calls himself a Christian in, in that culture and someone who never goes to church. He says, but 
If a person says he follows Jesus, that's a different story. And we're praying that that hope we have, hanging your lives on Jesus, and this meaning for a believer, one who follows Jesus, will really, many, many, or not the people, will take that leap of faith as they start to interact with his word in, in a form that they, they use every day. One of the things that we've been praying and we've asked you guys to pray over the years is that the Indonesian church would get behind Bible translation, not just in Fordata, but throughout the country. Indonesia is a huge country, as big as the United States is, but with ocean and thousands of islands. It's the most populous Muslim country in the world. But even so, there is freedom in some areas to openly believe, to gather as together as believers. There's over 600 languages spoken in Indonesia. About half have at least a minimal Christian presence, if not a majority. But the other half, um, most of them have no witness at all about Jesus. In this meeting that I was at with church leaders and organization leaders from all over Indonesia, they said in one voice they want to see God's word in all 600 of these languages. So they made a commitment in their areas, and in uh, most of their areas there are significant numbers of uh, groups of uh, people that don't believe at all in Jesus. They're making a commitment that they want to get God's word into all these languages. So it was so encouraging to see these prayers of tens of thousands of believers all throughout the world coming to fruition and excitement now beginning to, to really come to, come to light in the Indonesian church. So the step we're at right now is we have um, completed all of the checks by an outside consultant of all 27 books of the New Testament. But now we're in the final lap around the track, and we're finding it's pretty challenging. Um, we have to compare across parallel passages so that they sound they're the same. In, when they're the same in one they need to be the same in the other place where they are, especially in the Gospels. So um, it's, a, it's a really big and rather tedious job because we did it over such a long period of time. Um, but we're, we're really grateful for a good team, uh, for you guys praying, for great software that's really helpful. Um, but at times it, it's, it's just really big, and it's, it's quite tedious, <laughs> not as exciting as being out with the people and sharing the hope we have in Christ. But it's a really important job, and we really appreciate your prayers just that we could stick with it. Um, yeah, and also, so we will be going overseas, uh, Craig, on the 22nd. I'll be leaving on the 30th. We'll be over there till December um, working with our team again and also in getting out, hopefully, and doing some promotional work with our team among the Fordata-speaking areas. Um, but we would really, really appreciate your prayers. There's a, an English version that I stumbled across um, that I really like. It's the reader's version for the uh, NIV. And Romans 15:4 says, Everything that was written in the past was written, uh, was written to teach us. The scriptures give us the strength to go on. They cheer us up and they give us hope. And that is our prayer, that these people that we're serving among, that they would grasp onto that hope, that they would have the scriptures made clear and they would understand the hope. But for us personally, we, we need that too. And how thankful I am for the scriptures in language that speaks to my heart. That, you know, I, I read through Chronicles and 
you know, I can relate to, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And uh, it's, it's hard sometimes to do this, but um, we're very, very thankful for the hope we have that God gives us. And um, one other prayer as we go, um, the first week of October, Craig and I are beginning to move into kind of consultant roles for other groups because there are 200 other languages where there's no work and there's a bunch of languages where work is in project, pro- progress. So I'll be consulting for another language group, um, checking the book of Acts. And um, this is my first solo flight as a consultant, and I really appreciate prayer because it's rather big for me. Okay, thank you. Okay, we're going to pray over these guys right here. So let's do this right now. Father, we thank you so much for Sarah, for Craig, for their desire to be used of you. Thank you for the gifts you've given them, the ability to understand languages in such a way that I truly can't at all. And I pray that you would give them not just the ability to persevere, but an overwhelming encouragement that causes them to have extreme joy. And they'll find each day as they encounter you that they recognize that you're doing a wonderful work through them as you speak your truth to them. In your light, Lord, we ask that you might grant them light and that they might share that light with others that they can see as well. Your word is a wondrous thing. Declare it as only you can. Work through these two as we place them in your hands. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. You guys are going to be in the back at the end, right? You guys will still be here? Yeah, they'll be in the back if you guys wanted to have a conversation with them. Now, okay, if you promise me that you'll only take like two minutes to say hi to somebody right now, I don't want to miss it, but we need to get rolling. So stand up, say hi to somebody, give them a hug, and then sit back down. Go. Danielle? I know, right? I have... A pe- I have a uh, pepperoni pizza and a cheese pizza from Costco in the um, refrigerator if you just want to use those and a bu- big old thing of cookies if you just want to use those for the kids when you're hanging out today. I have the kids. Oh, for you? For you. If you just want to make them and then you can just have the kids eat that instead of going out and getting food. Whatever. I just wanted you to know it's there. All right, all right. All right. All right, Byron and John, you promised. I'm holding you to your word. Turn with me to John 11, if you would. I've got about 45 minutes worth of material that we're going to fit into about 25 minutes, so let's see how we do. Ah, I'm just going to speak really quickly. John 11. Now, we are in the midst of the Gospel of John, and this whole Gospel, if we were to step back and look at it, there's really three parties that are in view. First, you have Jesus, who is the main focus of this entire gospel that John's writing. Gospel simply means good news. This is the good news about Jesus' life. And then you have these two parties that have seen Jesus, have interacted with him, and drawn different conclusions. One party is the disciples. They've seen Jesus, said, I think this is the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer of his people. We believe and we believe so much we're going to follow him with our lives. We're not just going to call ourselves Christ followers. We're literally going to follow him. Then you have the other group of people who have kind of weighed him, measured him, and found him wanting and says, I don't think that's him. And so often they are represented by the Jewish religious leaders. Those are the people who are most uh, 
kind of against him, antagonistic to Jesus. And so those two parties are really in place. And every time something happens, and a lot of times throughout this, Jesus will do a miracle. He'll do something amazing. People start talking. Who is this guy? Could this be the Messiah? And then he'll use those opportunities as people are talking about him to tell a little bit about himself. Okay, this is what this proves about me. This is what this shows about me. That's what's happened in the last six miracles that he's done. But the last miracle that he performs, the one that we're going to look at in John 11, he handles it a little bit differently. This time, he's actually going to tell about himself first, and then he's going to do a miracle that kind of backs that up. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 11, and let's fly. All right. Now, there was a man named Lazarus. Now, just... just for context, so we remember what's going on. Jesus, the last time he was in Jerusalem, had some interaction with the Jews. He had basically claimed to be the son of God. They said, blasphemy, we need to stone this man for his blasphemy. And at that point, Jesus said, okay, not all that safe to be around Jerusalem. There's a lot of aggression here. I'm out. And so he's pulled away and he's been doing ministry throughout the Judean countryside and beyond. And he's mainly been focused in this last chapter, in chapter 10, near the Jordan River, the same region where John the Baptist was baptizing people. So he's outside of Judea, which is kind of like the area. Jerusalem is the main capital city of that region. Okay. Now, there was a man named Lazarus who was sick, and he was from Bethany, a village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. John kind of expects us to be familiar with that story, so obviously he thinks that we've already read the other Gospels. So his, his audience, he's aware that they know that. And in the next chapter, he's actually going to tell that story. So these sisters sent words to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. A couple of things that we need to know about this. Bethany is about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem, so it's in the Judean area, which means that if Jesus were to travel there, there, was going, you know, there could potentially be some conflict. Secondly, Jesus obviously has a relationship with Martha, Mary, and her brother Lazarus. This family is somebody that Jesus knows pretty well, well enough that they could say, hey, if we send word to him, Jesus will come and help him out. And so that's what they do. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. He's speaking to his disciples. The, the girls sent somebody about a day's journey to where Jesus was. He says, tell him that Lazarus is sick. Jesus looks to his disciples after the, the person has shared this news and said, listen, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son himself may be glorified through it. And so Jesus points to this and go, hey, even though death is going to factor into this, death is not going to get the last word in this. And furthermore, God is going to use this. He's not suggesting that God made Lazarus sick on purpose. He's God. He could do anything he wants. So I guess you could say that he could if he wanted to. But one of the things about God is he often uses the painful trials in our life for good. He can redeem them. And in this instance, Jesus says God is going to redeem this for good to shine the light of his glory, not only upon himself, but upon his son, so that people will know where I'm from. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That, that sounds weird to me. He loved them, so he stayed two more days before heading out, right? You would think... You know, that if, if you cared about somebody, you would rush to their side right away. And that would make sense if all we were looking at in this was the momentary trouble that Lazarus was in, the fact that he was sick. If the only goal here 
was his sickness, then by all means, with as much haste as he can, get there and make him better. But remember that Jesus is coming from a much different perspective. He didn't come simply to find those who were hungry and feed them for a day. He didn't simply come looking for people who were sick and heal them of their colds and heal them of their flus. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to find people who were hurting and shackled in their sins, who had nothing but death to look forward to and to rescue us from our greatest enemy, death and ultimately the separation that we have from God. That's why he came. And so in this, although we don't necessarily see it yet, out of his love for Mary and Martha, he actually waits two days. But then he said to his disciples, all right, it's time to go to Jerusalem. And so when he had heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? What are you thinking? And Jesus answered, Well, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Basically what he's saying to them is, listen, in the same way that there's 12 hours of daylight and no human being through their own efforts can extend or decrease the amount of daylight, God has given to me a certain amount of time to do the ministry that he has called me to do. And no amount of fear and caution on your parts is going to extend or decrease that time. And on the same way, no amount of aggression and opposition will decrease or or, or increase the amount of time that I have. Ultimately, so long as I am doing God's will, I'm going to have the allotted amount of time that God has given me. And then, when that time is up, no amount of your concern for me is going to extend that time. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going back to wake him up. And his disciples, who took him literally, um, replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. But Jesus had been speaking metaphorically about his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so they told him plainly, I'm sorry, so then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Again, it's not just about Lazarus's momentary condition. It's about their spiritual condition. But let's go back to him. And then Thomas, whom we know best from the moment when Jesus rose from the dead and the disciples saw him and then Thomas shows up later and they go, Jesus is alive. And he goes, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And so we've known through history, we know this guy is doubting Thomas. I love the fact that Thomas gets at least one other verse in this Bible that talks about him, and it's a positive one. Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, well, let's go also with him so that we may die with him. Jesus' disciples truly believed that if he went back to Jerusalem or into that region, he would die. But Thomas is like, fine, then let's go with him. Let's at least follow him, and whatever, whatever happens to him will happen to us. So... It's sad that we only kind of tend to view people scripturally in a very kind of two-dimensional way. And these are three-dimensional people. There were a lot going on. And oftentimes it's helpful to recognize that there's more to them than just a momentary interaction. Now the scene changes. Now we are traveling about a day into Bethany. This is about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. And that's where this interaction is going to take place. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, the reason it's significant is that 
let's think for just a moment. How many days did Jesus wait before he went back to Jerusalem? Two. So if he hadn't left immediately, would he have made it in time for, uh, for Lazarus not to die? No, we cannot construe this as Jesus waited until Lazarus died. In fact, we believe that Lazarus probably died pretty soon after the messenger was sent to tell Jesus, since it took about a day to get there and a day for him to journey back, and he was waiting for two days. So by the time the messenger was telling him, hey, Lazarus is sick, Lazarus had already died. So there was no reason for Jesus to hurry back. But the second reason that I believe that Jesus waited for two days is this. The Jews had a belief, this is not scriptural, but they had a social belief that when somebody died, their spirit would hover around the body for about three days, hoping that it could somehow be rejuvenated and they could enter, that the spirit could enter back in and that person could be resuscitated. But after three days, in a warm climate with no embalming, the body starts to stink a little bit. And the, the, the corruption starts to creep in. And at that point, they believed the spirit took off. By four, day four, spirit was gone because there was no way that this body was going to be resuscitated. And so anything that would happen to Lazarus on the fourth day and after could not be construed as, oh, he had just swooned. He had just passed out. He, no, he was just coming back. Uh, he was just being resuscitated. No, this man must have been raised from the dead if he was ever going to come out of the tomb. So it's significant that he waited until day four. Verse 18. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So Mary and Martha are surrounded by a group of people, many of whom have traveled from Jerusalem. Now what they're doing here is something that in the Hebrew culture is called sitting Shiva. Shiva is a term for seven. And what they would do is, when somebody died or when something tragic happened in somebody's life, people would come around the grieving party and they would literally sit down with them for seven days. You don't need to turn here, but in the book of Job, we see this happening right at the beginning of the book. Job's friends, when Job loses his kids, when he loses a lot of his life and he begins to be covered in boils, I mean, he's just going through a lot of it. We read about Job's friends who heard about all of his troubles and came to him. And so they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with Job and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him because of all that had happened. And they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And so for seven days and seven nights, we see Job's friend sitting Shiva with him. That's a wonderful gift to give to somebody. Now, after that seven days, they started going, okay, what'd you do wrong that God would want to punish you? And that's when kind of the things went off the rail. But up to that point, they were being kind and generous in terms of their time. They were basically saying, wherever you're at in your grieving process is fine. We want to allow you the right to grieve however you need. And in this cultural norm of sitting Shiva, people would come alongside the grieving, sit down with them, and then allow the grieving party to dictate what they needed. If that person wanted to cry, they would weep with them. If that person wanted to kind of share stories about the person's life and reminisce and smile a little bit about the good times, they would join with them in that. But if that person didn't want to say a word and just wanted to sit silent, they would join them in that as well and allow them the freedom to grieve however they needed. Beautiful gift. Something that I wish that we had more in our own culture because their presence 
said more to them than any words possibly could. You are not alone in your suffering. And so that's what's happened with this group of people who have come to sit Shiva with Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Now, this isn't because Martha was closer to Jesus. It's because Martha was the older sister. And so it was natural for her to be the host and invite him in. Verse verse 21. When Martha sees Jesus, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And I read that and my first reading is, is she trying to manipulate Jesus into raising her brother from the dead? Oh, Jesus, if you had just shown up, he would be alive, but I know you can get anything you want, so come on. That's actually the opposite of what she's actually doing here. Martha in no way is expecting Jesus to raise her brother from the dead. Instead, she's reaffirming her faith in Jesus. To paraphrase what she's saying here, Jesus, I know that if you'd been here, you could have saved him, that you could have healed his sickness. But even now, even in his death, I know that God listens to you and I know that he loves you and that you are God's servant. It is a beautiful reaffirmation of her faith in the face of her own grief and her own loss. That's what's going on. And Jesus responds in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, I know that that's going to happen. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, you're talking about the resurrection of the last day? I am the resurrection. I am the life. And if anyone believes in me, they will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die, will never taste eternal death. Do you believe this? And Martha reaffirms her faith in him. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer the Son of God who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and he's asking for you. Well, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she begins to weep. And the people with her join her in her weeping. And the the word here for weeping is not just a quiet tear. I mean, they are crying loudly. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had also come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he asked, where have you laid him? Now, the term deeply moved in spirit isn't just feeling a little disturbance in the forest. It suggests, it's, it's the same word that they would use for a, a war horse that's snorting about ready to go into battle. I can't do it. I, I'd try, but I would cover you in something. <laughs> Suffice it to say, Jesus is, it's suggesting that Jesus is feeling angry. Wait a minute, why is he feeling angry? Is he angry at Mary? Is he angry at the people who are are mourning and grieving with her? No. He is watching one of his friends grieving deeply over the effects of death in in his life. And he is upset and angry at the hold that sin and ultimately death has over mankind. He's angry so much so that he would say, well, where have you laid him? I am done with this. This is why he's come, to undo the grip 
that sin and death have on our lives. And now he's seeing firsthand one of his friends deeply impacted by this. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus wept. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. But it shows so much. What I love about that verse, Jesus wept, is it shows that Jesus, God in human flesh, is not some unfeeling, unaffected deity that just kind of stands back watching as the rest of the world is affected by life. Jesus was affected. Jesus had a full range of emotions. He felt joy. He felt sorrow. He felt pain. He felt fear in the night that he was about to go on the cross. He's saying, God, if there's any other way we can do this. He felt anger when he cleaned out the temple. He says, you guys have turned this place into a den of robbers and it's supposed to be a house of worship. And the reminder is that God is not some distant, abstract, disengaged deity that just kind of created the world, wound it up, and then stands back and watches it spin out of control. He is emotionally involved. We have a God who understands our emotion. Reminds me of what Isaiah said about the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He says, The Messiah is a man of sorrows who is deeply acquainted with grief. And here Jesus is feeling grief over the death of his friend. And so Jesus wept. Verse 36. Then the Jews said, Wow, see how he loved him. But some of them also said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Verse 38. Then Jesus, once more deeply moved, again feeling anger as he's now standing before the tomb, seeing the tangible reminder of death grip over mankind. He was deeply moved and he came to the tomb and it was a cave with a stone laid across it. And he said, take away the stone. Now, how do we know that Martha wasn't fully grasping that Jesus was going to raise her brother from the dead because of her response right here? <laughs> Lord, Martha said, by this time, it's been four days and there's got to be a bad odor in there. We don't want to open that thing up. Trust me. He smelled enough in life. You don't want to smell him in death. Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of the Lord? And so they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus, before he does this miracle, focuses people's attention and goes, listen, the authority and power is not simply derived from me. It is from the Father. Don't look to me. Look to the Father right now. Because it is by his word, his will, and his authority that this is about to happen. Verse 43, And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his feet and his hands wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. I don't know if his feet were tied together or if he was able to walk, but he looks like a mummy walking out of the grave. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine what Mary and Martha must have been experiencing in that moment as they watched the brother that they had pretty much given up any hope of ever seeing again this side of the grave walk out of the tomb? And the fact that he was alive was a tangible proof of what Jesus had said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in me will live even though they have died. And those who place their faith in me and live by faith will never taste eternal death. It also is a reminder of what he had said to his disciples all the way back there at the Jordan. Lazarus is, is sick, 
But this sickness will not end, will not culminate, will not, death will not get the last word. But God is going to use this to bring glory upon himself and shine the light of his glory upon his son that people will know who I am and what I've done. So this act that he does of raising Lazarus from the tomb confirms things that he's already spoken to people. But now, as so often happens in John, now the picture backs up a little bit to the people who have witnessed this. And we begin to go, how are they going to respond? And again, two camps. People begin to be more divided. Verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. They begin to put their faith in him. I mean, this guy just raised somebody from the dead. Not just revived him, resurrected him. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish, it's like the theological and political ruling class. There's 70 members of the Sanhedrin. Rome oversees all of Israel. Rome has conquered them. They are basically the ones who have said to the the Jews, if you guys stay in line... We'll let you guys govern yourselves. You can have a governing body. You can have access to the temple. You can be the representatives of your people. Now remember, your power is derived from us. So you step out of line, you're going to lose your power, you're going to lose the temple, and we're going to smack you down pretty hard. But if you can keep control over the people, you can go ahead and rule. Now the Sanhedrin's terrified Because what if Jesus starts gathering people together? How is Rome going to respond if they think they have another rebellion brewing on their hands? So we read in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and they asked, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs and if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. We must shut him up. We need to stop people from believing in him. What can we do? Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You guys know nothing at all. Really respectful way to respond to your peers. You guys know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Now, Caiaphas is talking about we need to kill him, silence him so that we can maintain our place. But ironically... It's also a testimony of God's mindset. It is better for one to die. In this case, I will take your place. God in human flesh. It is better for one to die for all of my children than for all of them to perish separated from me because of their sin. Verse 51. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life, which I find tremendously ironic that the result of a miracle that gave life to somebody would ultimately result in a death sentence placed upon the very person who brought life to that person. It's just interesting. Verse 54. Therefore, because they were looking to take his life, Jesus no longer moved about publicly amongst the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up to the country, from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, 
What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Okay, I know. Drink it from a fire hose. Couple of thoughts. Every time I read this, we want to dive into Scripture. We want to kind of immerse ourselves and go, what are they saying? But then we want to step back and go, okay, so what? How does this affect us? The reality is this entire chapter, if you stand back and kind of take a bird's eye view of it, this entire chapter revolves around the subject of death. And death isn't exactly a subject we like to talk a whole lot about. Because it's something that many of us know all too well. We have already, many of us, experienced the pain of losing somebody that we love. Or some of us have a diagnosis that makes the grave a little bit too close for our comfort. And I I suspect that many of us here who have tasted death can understand a little bit about, empathize a bit with Mary and Martha and what they experienced over those four days as they said goodbye to their brother. And as they grieved the thought that perhaps Jesus could save him if he gets here, but he didn't arrive in time and the disappointment that they felt. But I doubt that any of us really can fully grasp the emotions, the overwhelming flood of emotions that they must have experienced when they watched their brother walk out of the tomb under his own power. And as they watched the men begin to unwrap the, the, the whatever those things are called, uh, bandages, thank you, the bandages from around Lazarus's body. Probably the closest, I was thinking, I'm like, have I ever experienced something like that? Probably the closest I could get happened on the third day of Grayson's life. My son, my second-born, Grayson, was born 11 weeks prematurely, as many of you know. Um, You walked with us through this. And over the first 48 hours of his life, my little boy uh, was born with meningitis. An infection had gone throughout his body and into his spinal column. And so he had a majorly bad infection that most children, especially children that young, don't survive. When they tried to resuscitate him and and put a a, a breathing uh, tube in there, it inflated his lungs and one of them's collapsed because it couldn't handle the amount of oxygen. And so now he had to undergo two surgeries to try to reinflate his lungs so he could actually breathe. On top of that, the greatest fear that they had was that he would have a brain bleed. Children that are born that young and go through that amount of trauma, oftentimes one of their young, immature blood vessels will pop. And if it happens in their brain, it will literally flood their brain and cause irreparable brain damage. And the fact that my son, within the first 48 hours, had to have a transfusion suggested that it was very possible that he'd have a brain bleed. That was our greatest concern. And it had gotten to the point where Kathy and I were almost resigned to the fact that he may not come home. You better believe we were praying. And I know many of you guys were praying with us. And I remember very vividly on the third day of Grayson's life, I was at home with Ethan. Because for a three-year-old, life continues, even though it feels like everything has come to a standstill for us as parents. I'm at home with Ethan playing on the front lawn. Kathy's at the hospital where she hadn't left yet. And we're waiting for the doctors to give us some indication of does he have a brain bleed or not. You know, they had done some tests. And I got the phone call from Kathy and she said, he's okay, he doesn't have a brain bleed. And in that moment, it's probably the closest I can tell you to what probably I would imagine Mary and Martha felt. It felt like somebody took two gigantic sandbags off of my shoulders and just dropped them on the ground. And in that moment, I couldn't help but collapse onto my knees and begin weeping, not realizing the amount of 
fear, anxiety, pain, sorrow that I had already accumulated over the short amount of time that my boy had been alive. The short amount of time that he had been in a hospital that I could see him. And all I remember saying was, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving my baby. Thank you for for protecting him from that, knowing he was nowhere near out of the woods, but just being so grateful that he was not going to have to suffer yet another catastrophic thing to overcome. I remember saying, God, I entrust my baby into your hands. Your will be done. It's probably the closest I can get to what Mary and Martha must have experienced as they watched Lazarus coming out of the tomb. But I have to ask myself, what if that phone call had gone a different direction? What if Kathy had called me and said, "Hun, he has bleeding on the brain. The doctors are going to do everything they can, but it's happened. At that point, would God cease to be worthy of my praise? At that point, would I be correct in thinking that God had turned his back on me? And as I read scripture, I cannot find in scripture God saying, if you trust in me, nothing bad will ever happen to you. I find just the opposite. John 16, Jesus talking to his disciples, he says to them, listen, this is the night before he's going to be arrested and crucified. Listen, guys, in this world, you are going to experience trouble. Life will not go like you would like it to go all the time. You are going to suffer. You are going to feel pain. You are going to experience death. But he didn't stop there. In this world, you will experience trouble, but you can take heart because I have overcome the world. In other words, he was telling him, listen, regardless of what you go through, the pain you experience does not need to get the last word. So, you will experience grief. You will experience pain. You will experience addiction. You will experience, some of you, the feelings of deep depression and anxiety and you'll cry out, God, take this from me, and he may not take it. Think of Paul saying, you know, you have given me this thorn in the flesh, and I have prayed multiple times for you to remove it, and God said, no, because my power is made perfect in your weakness. In this world, we will have trouble. In this world, we will experience grief, and unless Jesus comes quickly, every single person in this room will taste physical death. But we can take heart, And the fact that because of what he did on the cross, he has overcome the world. He has overcome the pain of those things. And they do not get the last word. And that is good news. In fact, that led Paul in 2 Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that led Paul to write in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day after day for our light and our momentary troubles. And I know they don't feel light, and I know that they don't feel momentary. But our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of the unknown, as our little boy is laying on a table with machines breathing for him, and people monitoring him, and his food being fed to him intravenously because we can't even lift him up. Because every time we touch him, it is experienced as pain for a child that young. We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, 
we are not like the rest of the world who have no hope. And when pain comes crashing into our safe, comfortable little bubbles, we know that at the end of the day, regardless of the outcome, it doesn't get the last word. Now, does that mean that when pain happens, we should just turn a blind eye to it and pretend it's not happening, right? Just kind of get our little Vulcan mindset going of, I I don't feel any pain. Kind of like saying to a mother who's giving birth right now, hey, don't worry about it. I know it hurts right now, but guess what? It's going to be over quickly, and then you're going to have a beautiful baby. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. She has a right to feel pain in the moment, okay? Let her cry. It's okay. I am so thankful, ladies, by the way, that you carry the children and not us. You are much stronger in that area. Um, So it's not that we just turn a blind eye to our pain and pretend it's not happening. Even Jesus wept at the death of his friend, even though he knows that in just a few minutes he's going to raise him from the grave. But it's okay to experience our emotions. God made us emotional. Furthermore, we have a God who understands our emotions. He experienced pain. Because of Jesus coming and taking flesh upon himself and walking, we have a God who can empathize with our pain and with our weakness, who felt a full range of emotions and knows what we go through, and that gives us the ability to come before him just as we are, not pretending like we have it all together, not trying to like suck all our our anguish into our bodies and pretend like we've got it all together. Like one of my mentors said, prayer is not a time to be good. It's a time to be honest. And the beautiful thing about our Father in Heaven is He is big enough to handle our emotions. He is big enough to handle our questions. He's big enough to handle whatever we can bring. So we can come just as we are. Broken. Hurting. Scared. And that's okay. One last thought. As the the worship team is going to come up and we're going to close this up. I can't help but go back to the fact that God has designed us not to do life alone, but to do life in community. One of the first things, actually the first thing he ever said that wasn't good about his creation, it is not good that man should be alone. And he designed us to be in community with him, first and foremost, and then with one another. And I love this practice that the Hebrew culture has of sitting Shiva to come towards the grieving and meet them where they're at and allow them the freedom to grieve however it is that they need. But I have experienced far too often in our culture when somebody's hurting, when somebody's going through a divorce, when somebody's being diagnosed with a a probably uh, life-altering sickness or when somebody passes away. Far too often in our culture we move away from those people We give them distance because, quite honestly, we don't know what to say to them to make it better. Can I be the first to say there's probably nothing you can say to make it better? We need to allow ourselves to grieve in that. We need to allow them the freedom to grieve in that. We cannot be Jesus to them. We can't save them or rescue them out of that. But we can join them in that and walk with them through that so they don't walk through it alone. So sometimes we avoid people because we just don't know what to say to make it better. And other times, we're just uncomfortable with awkward silence. We don't like awkwardness, so we're just going to avoid them. And that's the last response that people need. And I can tell you from personal experience, many of you in this room 
When we went through that with Grayson and other times in our life when we've gone through grief, when we had our miscarriage not too long ago, you guys have surrounded us and stood with us and loved on us. Many of you brought us meals, tangibly meeting a need that we had. And then you just sat and you allowed us to process. Some of you didn't say a word. Others just came and put your arms around us. That's what we needed more than anything. Sometimes it's really hard in the midst of pain to articulate what you're going through. Sometimes it feels in the midst of pain like other people want you to take care of them. And one way we can respond to those of us who are hurting, it's okay to grieve. In fact, grieving is very healthy. And if you're in the midst of grief, give yourself freedom to be there. And when you go through grief... Allow yourself the freedom to be there. And for those of us who walk with those whom we love through grief, the best thing we can do is what Job's friends did for them, for him, for those first seven days. What those people did for Mary and Martha during that week or those four days that Lazarus was dead, they just came around them, they sat with them, and they allowed them to process however they needed. They joined them in it. We were not made to do life alone. And that's one of the reasons why we do small groups here at our church. One of the reasons we place such an emphasis on it is because even in a church of this size, it's still easy to be able to slip in and slip out and feel like you're not known. In small groups, you can't do that. That is community. That is where you can be known and journey with other people through the ups and the downs of life, where you can rejoice and you can weep with one another. So may I beg you, if you are not currently in a community group, if you are not part of a small group, Get in one. I don't care what it looks like. Even if you're in one in another church, that's fine. Or in another community, that's fine. Just be in community. Do not try to do this on your own. And may we overcome our own anxiety of trying to fix it for other people and allow one another the right to be in process. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have hope in the midst of of the pain of this world. I thank you for the reminder that you gave to Martha that you are the resurrection, you are the life. And that if we place our faith in you, that even though we may taste death, death will not get the last word. We will never experience eternal death. And for that, we're grateful. Thank you for taking that punishment upon yourself so that we can have relationship with our Father in heaven, that we can be reunited. Father, may we as this community be a support to one another as we journey through life and as we pursue you together. Would you have your way with us, Jesus? I pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Hey guys, um, we're going to take offering in just a moment, probably halfway through this song. We'll start passing the, the, the bags.